Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's eating you? I never knew a podcaster could be trusted completely. I was a podcaster myself once. And what do you know is I, I did not mean to. I know what you meant, still. But the test of a man isn't the episode you think he'll produce. It's what he actually releases. So profound. So profound. I hope our listeners judge us on that metric. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? Welcome to Gom Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name's Leo. <laughs> and Leo, yeah. we owe our listeners an apology. <laughs> yeah. Because we lied. Mm. Set expectations <laughs> poorly, we did. Uh, not the last episode. Of the book club. (laughs) Yeah. Oops. Whoops. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So in the previous book club episode, we thought today would be the final one. Yeah. We're technically in the last hundred pages of the first Dune novel, which is so exciting. What a journey it has been. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But (laughs) then we started scripting today's episode and realized, holy shit, these last hundred pages are some of the thickest in the entire book. Some, some of the densest content is in these last hundred pages and there's so much to talk about. And instead of skimming over stuff or cutting stuff that we desperately want to talk about and wouldn't have time for, we decided, hey, let's split these last hundred pages in two. Today, we'll be going over pages 689 through 740, which is approximately 50 pages. Right. And then in one more book club episode, the next one, We'll wrap it up with the final 50 pages of the book. I mean, it was either split this into two episodes or have one 32-page script and like a five-hour episode. <laughs> and right. I know that some listeners would be into it, but yeah. <laughs> just for the sake of time and being responsible, that is what we're doing today. And as always, we'd love to hear from you, especially in these final pages, because, yeah. ooh, it's rich. It's delectable. This writing is mm, so good. Chef's kiss. Email us. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Your takes, hot and cold, both. Yes, all of them. <laughs> all of them. E- even your uh, lukewarm, like, room temperature takes. You left Send it them out. our way. You left it out, and I don't <laughs> hold it against you. You forgot. You got busy. It was hot, is now room temperature. We'll drink it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Last bit of housekeeping. Just a reminder that this entire series has been spoiler free and today will be no different. We will be talking about 
all of the pages covered thus far and no further. So if you are a first time reader, you can rest assured that we will not be spoiling anything beyond the pages covered thus far in today's episode. It would be wild to change that up <laughs> to just like episode eight. <laughs> can you imagine? Just wild spoilers. <laughs> just so many. Right. <laughs> All of the like quintessential. Anyway, no, we're not going to. You're safe. This is a safe space. Right. Except for one. Darth Vader is Luke's father. What? Oh, man. <laughs> I had waited 50 years to watch that movie. And now, what's the point? <laughs> well, with that out of the way, let's jump into the beginning of the end of Dune. Ooh. Ooh. Shivers. I love it. Shivers. So good. So, again, <laughs> these chapters, you may have noticed, are dense. And we're going to do our best to keep this from being a uh, three-hour episode. But it's a long <laughs> script. We make no promises. So sit back and enjoy. Let's get into it. Chapter 44. What happens? Well, Leo, this chapter starts off with an absolute bang. Because Jessica has arrived from the Deep South, just as Paul requested. And the Fremen have intercepted a Harkonnen message. A message that Paul is keeping under wraps for now, but is about to reveal to the rest of us. So Paul has gathered all the Fremen in the assembly chamber. We're about to talk this issue out because there's still unrest within the tribe. People are still wondering when Paul Usul Muad'Dib, the Lisan Algabe himself, yeah. the promised one, the legendary one, is going to call out Stilgar and finally become their leader. Right. They are antsy. They're waiting for this to happen. The young Fremen in this assembly chamber are literally like yelling this out. <laughs> Challenge him, like, do it. What are you waiting do it, for? Coward. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sign my tits. Like <laughs> Paul's like, Ugh, do you have a Sharpie? They're like, no. He's like, you're unprepared? God. The worst fans. <laughs> the worst fans. They cannot wait for Paul to rise to power and take the throne. Yeah. But it's in this scene that we really see how much in these last two-ish, three-ish years, Paul has truly grown. He is no longer the child who first came to Arrakis at the start of the book, the right. child we met early on. There's an exchange with one of these young Fremen who are screaming out in this assembly chamber. One of them says, quote, now's the time for sure. They'll think you a coward if you... And Paul cuts him off and responds with, who dares call me a coward? And his hand flashes to his Chris knife hilt. Oh, shit. Holy shit. Remember, this is the guy whose partner is laying people out who are trying to challenge him. Right. Imagine the final boss putting his hand on his fucking Chris knife. Like, you do not finish your sentence, Mr. Young Fremen. <laughs> He's ready to bury his knife in a person he's like what's up yeah, yeah. who said that <laughs> what's up <laughs> who the fuck <laughs> somebody say coward <laughs> the room at this point goes dead silent paul is in full command of this assembly chamber and uh what an exhilarating scene that takes place here now that paul has command of the room here is basically the argument that paul lays out to all of the gathered fremen and by the way, he's using a little bit of voice here too to add a little flavor to of his course. argument. You know, mm. you spicy. You add a little uh, 
red chili pepper flakes <laughs> onto your pizza to give it a kick. That's what he's doing. Here. That's what the voice is. It's just spicy, <laughs> spicy talking. Spicy chili flakes. Yeah. <laughs> spicy chili flakes. Yeah. So Paul's argument is basically that the goal of the Fremen is to ultimately rid Arrakis of the Harkonnens, right? Right. That's established. Everyone in the room knows this. Secondarily, it's also well established that Paul can easily best any Fremen name among just, the Fremen yeah. <laughs> in single combat. Like it is, nobody is questioning. The dude just put his hand on his Chris knife and the room fucking fell silent. No one here is questioning Paul's ability in combat. So Paul is basically making the argument, I could go from siege to siege to siege in the desert and just start gutting names, right? <laughs> right I could right. climb to the top of all of the Fremen and none of you question I could do that. Right. We've, this has been well established. <laughs> They're all like, mm-hmm, yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thus he moves to the second part of his argument. He says, why the fuck would I do that? Right. Why would I go around just stabbing some of the most powerful, resourceful Fremen among our community, right? Because as a reminder, we talked about this in the previous book club, to become a knave, you have to prove you are smarter, faster, stronger than everyone else in your tribe. Right. And then you have to continually prove that time and time again as people challenge you throughout your leadership. Right. So his point is valid here. Why would he go around just ridding the Fremen of some of their most smartest, most capable fighters and leaders? That's ridiculous. Yeah. Paul even has a great quote here. He says, quote, do you smash your knife before a battle? End quote. <laughs> I love that. And that's the thrust of his argument. Yeah. Our true enemies are the Harkonnens. Why are we going around fighting each other and weakening our own capabilities? Right. That's ridiculous. And then he continues later on in his speech. Quote, will I subtract from our strength when we need it most? I am your ruler. And I say to you that it is time we stopped killing off our best men and started killing our real enemies, the Harkonnens. End quote. Mm. Fuck, my blood is boiling. <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Let's go. I'm getting amped. <laughs> Let's, Let's fucking abandon go. this episode of Gamjabar and go kill some Harkonnens. <laughs> <laughs> And this is where he takes out that intercepted message, baby, because we've learned something else. Yeah. Beast Raban has been cut off from reinforcements, folks. Oh, shit. No more allowance for nephew Raban. No more allowance. He has no more reinforcements. This is the final thrust of his argument. Yeah. Now is the time to strike. Now is not the time to be fighting each other internally and trying to figure out who is leader and whether Paul should rise to power. He has just established himself as such. He just said, I am your ruler. Right. That is him daring anyone in the room to fucking defy them. Right, right. Incredible stuff. He has just fully, in this speech, established himself as the leader of the Fremen without having to spill any Fremen nabe blood. And he's made it clear now is the time to strike because Beast Raban has been cut off from reinforcements. He will never be weaker than he is now. And to wrap up this ceremony, while everyone in the assembly chamber is fucking stunned and that one lady is trying to desperately find a Sharpie, <laughs> they cap it off. Yeah. In a one-two punch, Paul has established himself as leader and made Stilgar one of his top lieutenants. Right. One of his right-hand men. 
without having to spill his blood. And Stilgar agrees. And this entire show that we learn from Jessica's thoughts here as she watches that's been planned, they've sort of coordinated this whole scheme, Right. ends with Stilgar giving a rousing shout and the Fremen in the room go buck fucking wild. Yeah. They are convinced <laughs> this yeah. is it. Paul is our leader. We all accept this. Let's go. Time to kill some Harkonnens. Yeah. From this scene, Paul and Jessica step away. They've achieved what they had to achieve in this elaborate show that they put on for all the Fremen. Paul is now officially in charge. And they step away to reunite with Gurney Halleck. Because reminder, Jessica has not yet met with Gurney. And Gurney has not yet met with Jessica. And as we know from the end of the previous chapter, he's got some deadly plans for when he does. And that's exactly what takes place. The minute Gurney comes face to face with Jessica, my guy's a man of action, right? Yeah. He leaps into the room. And before Paul can even come back in, he has an arm around Jessica and a knife at her throat and is ready to kill her at a moment's notice. And from this scene, we get this amazing sense of how truly capable a fighter Gurney is. Quote, Here was no man to be overcome easily. Here was a killer, wary of the voice, wary of every combat stratagem, wary of every trick of death and violence. Here was an instrument she herself had helped train with subtle hints and suggestions. And quote, Oh, that so is cool. what's running through Jessica's mind at that moment. <laughs> yeah. Holy oh, fuck. shit. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. In summary, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, I fucked up. I fucked up. I made him stronger. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. And yeah. considering how closely guarded a secret the voice is. Yeah. Incredible that Gurney is not only aware of it, but is also wary of it and ready to counter it at a moment's notice. I mean, Thufir was fucking shocked to discover the voice. And <laughs> Thufir knows so His much. His old bones were shook. His old bones were shook. Still shaking. They are. Today. <laughs> Meanwhile, fucking Gurney's over here like, I'm watching your vocal cords. You're only allowed to use that one. <laughs> it's like, yeah. wow. All Incredible. right. <laughs> Wild stuff. Yeah. So let's wrap up this chapter because it, it, this tense exchange ends on uh, such a heartfelt touching note paul comes back into the room and obviously there's a little bit of tension in the room <laughs> you don't say <laughs> one of your best friends and mentors has a knife to your mom's throat <laughs> little bit of tension here and slowly calmly paul tries to talk gurney down from the ledge here right and without the use of voice, Paul tells Gurney, quote, be quiet. What you have not done is heard my mother sobbing in the night over her lost duke. You have not seen her eyes stab flame when she speaks of killing Harkonnens. What you have not done is remembered the lessons you learned in a Harkonnen slave pit. You speak of pride in my father's friendship. Didn't you learn the difference between Harkonnen and Atreides so that you could smell a Harkonnen trick by the stink they left on it? Didn't you learn that Atreides' loyalty is bought with love while the Harkonnen coin is hate? Couldn't you see through to the very nature of this betrayal? End quote. Ugh. Holy shit. Just reading that, I'm getting a little emotional. Yeah. 
powerful stuff. He is appealing to Gurney's loyalty to the Atreides, right? Gurney is deathly loyal to the Atreides, to Duke Leto, sowing some doubt into Gurney's mind. Maybe Jessica isn't the traitor. Maybe I am wrong. How foolish of me to think that Jessica, the 16-year partner and love of Duke Leto's life, could betray him. Right. That confidence in his belief that Jessica is the traitor starts to crumble here. And then this scene wraps up, and there's some just powerful writing. We're, we're sharing a lot of long quotes here, but it, it's just all so good. Yeah, it's so good. One final piece of writing that we get from this chapter that is just so utterly beautiful. Quote, seeing the stiff formality in Paul, she realized what these words were costing him. She wanted to run to him, cradle his head against her breast as she had never done. End quote. Wow. When I read that, I nearly cried. Yeah. It's beautiful stuff. And it's beautiful enough to convince Gurney because Gurney relents and, in fact, begs Paul to kill him for his offense, for his mistake. And <laughs> this is actually really funny. <laughs> Paul has to respond with an inadvertently really hilarious line. Yeah. Quote, how many kinds of idiot do you think I am? Must I go through this with every man I need? End quote. <laughs> Paul is so over this shit. He's like, why does everyone want to die? Shit. <laughs> I need generals. Everyone, everyone is trying to just get killed by my Chris knife. I am so over this shit. I'm either riding on people's breasts with a Sharpie or I'm fucking stabbing my friends. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> Gurney then doesn't give up because he turns to Jessica and asks her to do the very same thing, to kill him for his failure as her friend. Instead, she forgives him and asks instead that he grab his balisette and sing them a song like the old days. And that's just what Gurney does. Yeah. Now, Paul leaves the room, and in the corridor, he meets with a courier and learns that some of the leaders of the council are arriving at Paul's request. He's gathering the war council Again, like he's told the assembly, it's time to move against the Harkonnens officially. Right. And after receiving this message, his mind begins to wander because he's concerned. And this is a huge point that we're going to touch on later. He didn't see this confrontation with Gurney in any of his infinite visions. Yeah. He did not know any of this was coming. Seems like kind of a big blind spot. <laughs> it seems like that's a notable thing. That's a notable, massive blind spot. And this worries him. And the chapter ends with him heading to the water-holding basin in the siege because he's made up his mind. He is going to drown a little maker there, and he is going to try to undergo the spice agony with the water of life, one of the most poisonous substances in this galaxy. <laughs> yeah. He is going to try and do what his mother did. Quote, we will see now whether I am the Kwisatz Haderach, who can survive the test that the Reverend Mothers have survived. And quote. Oof. He's like, we'll fucking see if I'm the main character. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> right. Chapter 45. Picks up three weeks later. Oh, that's fun. Another little time jump. Johnny has arrived at the Cave of Birds and apparently was summoned by Paul Muad'Dib. And she's nervous. She's like, yo, they're saving their ornithopters for the big fight. 
why was one sent to me? I have no idea what's going on. No one said anything. I'm just supposed to come here. And she's greeted by a Fadakin, Othame, which is how I think that is said. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Othame leads her to Jessica. And Jessica is acting fucking sus. She's acting so weird. She's like being so formal. And Chani's like, oh, God, just get to it. What's going on? Paul's been in a coma. <laughs> Paul's been in a fucking oh coma gosh. for the last few weeks. And nobody knows why. We know he went and tried to convert the water of life. He apparently didn't tell anybody because no one knows what's going on. <laughs> and Jessica has spent the last few weeks trying to revive him with all of the knowledge that she now has, which is, to be clear, thousands and thousands of lives worth of knowledge. She had a gut instinct. And there's this kind of touching moment where she's asked, why did I summon you? Well, I'm not really sure. I just kind of figured you'd be the one mm -hmm. again. Chani is the MVP, so obviously let's get her on the court. Yeah. <laughs> Immediately, Chani's like, yo, I got this, right? She's just been told that the love of her life has been in a coma for three weeks, and we get this little moment, quote, Chani took only a moment to calm herself, then, what is it I may do? End quote. Love that. So good. Focused. LeBron on the court. <laughs> no hesitation. She's like a witcher. Witcher doesn't hesitate. <laughs> and I love this moment because Jessica is like, yo, <laughs> way to go, Chani. Like, I know how worried you must be about Paul's safety, and yet you're able to act and think pragmatically. And she even thinks to herself, quote, she'd have made a fine Benny Gesserit, end quote. <laughs> hell yeah, she would have. Hell yeah, she would have. There's some really touching camaraderie in this scene between Chani and Jessica, both of whom are kind of finding new depths of appreciation for the other. And Chani realizes immediately, you know, Chani has a son now. So she's thinking about Jessica left the love of her life to save her son. Jessica left Duke Leto to save Paul. What would I as Chani do to save my son Leto? I understand what this is also costing her. And there's this real moment of they understand each other on a whole new level. It's really beautiful. Really yeah. great stuff. Yeah, I loved this part. So setting her mind to the task of <laughs> reviving Paul, Chani's like, you know what? Paul's the main character. He's a little bit crazy. He's like a mad lad. I, You know what? I bet he tried to convert the raw water of life. <laughs> that fucking idiot. It's one of the most deadliest poisons in the universe. <laughs> no man has ever done it, ever. Full stop. I bet he would try it. And it's great because, again, clearly she knows Paul well. Right. So sure enough, right away, Chani comes up with a plan. Bring me some raw water of life. Put a little bit on the, you know, under the nose. And just immediately Paul wakes up. Jessica's like, what the fuck? That's crazy. <laughs> but Paul did it. He successfully changed the water of life and lived to tell the tale. He is a little weak and disoriented. Now, he's just like, oh, Johnny, how did you get here in the two minutes I was asleep? And they're like, nah, man, you've been out for like three weeks. And he's like, oh, geez. Okay. Well, I guess I'll just take a whole. <laughs> I love this so much. I'm real thirsty. What's this? I'm real thirsty. <laughs> oh, great. You brought me a bowl of the, the universe's deadliest poison. Sweet. And just gulps it, which 
Jessica screams, you know, no, Paul. Yeah, he's of such course. A, yeah. <laughs> he's such a troll in this situation. <laughs> and it's incredible, too, that he was just told that a single drop of this poison knocked him out for three weeks. And he just scoops a handful into his mouth. Incredible stuff. Now, instead of like comforting his mom, who he just gave her a massive heart attack, he (laughs) (laughs) instead like grabs her hand and with a death's head or what's the phrase? It's like with a death head's grin. He's just got this like maniacal, crazy smile. Yeah. Yeah. Forces like a soul sharing. Right. He just force initiates. He's like, here we go, mom. And she's like, shit, oh, that's crazy. And to be clear, he is immediately getting to work. He's immediately like, let's get to the bottom of this grand mystery. Remember, from Jessica's spice agony, we had this moment, and this is so many pages ago, but here's the quote. Quote, focused on the psychokinesthetic extension of herself, looking within, and was confronted immediately with a cellular core, a pit of blackness from which she recoiled. That is the place where we cannot look, she thought. There is the place the Reverend Mothers are so reluctant to mention, the place where only a Quisat's Hatterack may look, end quote. And Paul's like, yo, let's go. <laughs> let's go right <laughs> to that cellular core. What's that? The, yeah, that the, like, place. That place. He's like, bead curtain at the video rental place. Let's go right through it. We're going to get this done. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that is a 90s joke if I've ever heard one. Yeah. Half of our listeners are like, I don't understand what that means. Shouts to family video. Rip. <laughs> <laughs> so Jessica's like, well, I don't want to, but I guess I don't really have a choice. Paul, his sort of awareness orb, <laughs> goes into this dark cellular core. And we get this very brief description of what I guess it looks like or what it is or feels like it's super poetic but i love it and here's the quote a region where a wind blew and sparks glared where rings of light expanded and contracted where rows of tumescent white shapes flowed over and under and around the lights driven by darkness and a wind out of nowhere end quote oh wow surreal it's so cool before she knows it the ordeal is over Paul releases her and she is tired. She is exhausted. She has 24-hour jet lag. It's brutal. Quote, Through it all threaded the realization that her son was the Kwisatz Haderach, the one who could be many places at once. He was the fact out of the Bene Gesserit dream, and the fact gave her no peace. End quote. (laughs) Just Uh, chilling stuff. Yeah. The aim of the Bene Gesserit has been accomplished and she is not feeling great about it. And it's terrifying. And it's terrifying. Now, Paul begins to explain kind of what he learned from his trip to this cellular core. And we'll talk about that in the one of the takeaways, which is about Paul being the Kwisatz Haderach. Before he can finish this sort of I am the chosen one speech, there's a momentary distraction as Othame, right, the Fidekin, runs from the room. <laughs> he was snooping. He was sneaking. Sneaky little hobbit. He's a sneaky little hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) He heard the whole I'm the chosen one speech, and he's just going to tweet it. He's like, I'm going to tell everyone. And Jessica is like, oh, man, yeah, he's about to tell everybody. Everyone's going to be talking about this. Yep. And let's not overlook some of the religious 
parallels here as well, right? Death, resurrection of a savior, of a messiah. This this is a very Jesus scene right here. Yeah. Othame just saw his messiah rise from what he thought was death. Yeah. Because as Jessica explained, many of the Fremen were already preparing for a post-Paul world. They had considered him dead. He's been in this coma for three weeks. And so Othame just seeing right here in front of him, his Messiah, wake the fuck up. Crazy. And be in his eyes all but resurrected. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So there's a lot of Jesus parallels happening here too with Paul. And again, not super familiar, but Jesus was three days, right, in the cave. Paul, three weeks, seven times more impressive. (laughs) Not to like... So on the record, Leo, (laughs) you are saying Paul Atreides, seven times more impressive than Jesus Christ. (laughs) I just, you know... I want to make sure when I pull the social clip that we have a clear, oh god, clear on the record sentence from out you. of context. Don't even include the context. Just Paul is seven times more impressive than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There it is. Boom! You gave Boom. it to me. Clean take. Let's move go. on. Thank you for not making any sound. Prepare to get that. canceled, buddy. God, oh, everything I was hoping for and more. Gamjabar. Okay. jessica is like okay i've got a chance to ask she asks him a good question right she's sitting in front of the quisats hatterack hey guy who can be many places at once what do you see you uh you see in that their future you looking in the future friend (laughs) and he's like you know what nah he hits her with the line that is one of my favorites from this book just personally this is one of my favorite lines because it's so telling quote not the future he said i've seen the now end quote and to be clear the n in now is capitalized he is talking about the now i mean i would nitpick and say yeah me too paul idiot (laughs) that's right all of what i see yeah look i i'm certain that i've had some very very high friends say these exact words to me as well (laughs) yeah Also, I try regularly to see the future. I fail. I try to remember the past. (laughs) Usually fail as well. Bad memory. The now is pretty much all I've got. So it's not impressive, Paul. Come on. (laughs) Joking aside, he is literally seeing, he's seeing a lot more now than I ever have. Right, right. Turns out he's seeing what appears to be thousands of miles in every direction. (laughs) Like right now, thousands of miles every direction. and. He gives us some really interesting news. First of all, you know the emperor who lives out on Kaiten? He's in space above Arrakis in a ship. Oh, shit. Yeah, he's there. (laughs) He's like on the door. You're like, I wonder if I have, I don't know. I got the feeling that someone's waiting at my door. Oh, it's the president. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) is that, is that fucking Joe Biden on the corner? Like, what the hell? Crazy. With his Sardaukar. <laughs> with his Sardaukar. With Joe, with Joe Biden's <laughs> famous five legions of Sardaukar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the emperor is there in space. He's not alone. He has five legions of Sardaukar. And we're going to talk about what that means a little later in the, in the morsels. But also, Baron Harkonnen. Ever heard of him? Uh, is also, yeah. <laughs> that guy, also in space. Grandpa. 
Grandpa Harkonnen is in space. He has seven ships stuffed with, as is described, every basically conscript he could find. (laughs) But also, also, we have some other guest appearances, which is to say every great house. (laughs) This is wild. Uh, So many of them, if not all of them, many of them. And they are circling like vultures, effectively, excited for this idea of looting the sort of remnants of House Atreides, or looting Arrakis at the very least. And Paul has a plan. He's like, I know how we're going to get out of this no-win scenario. Let's nuke the planet. (laughs) And which is (laughs) not exactly what he suggests, but it kind of is. Yeah. He outlines this insane plan. If you take water of life and you set it above a pre-spice mass, which is the uh, sort of spice blow that killed kinds, this creates a chain reaction. And Paul explains a little bit further here. Quote, the water of death, he said. It'd be a chain reaction, he pointed to the floor, spreading death among the little makers, killing a vector of the life cycle that includes the spice and the makers. Arrakis will become a true desolation without spice or maker. End quote. Yeah. Really the nuclear option. DEFCON 5 over here. How, how do DEFCONs work? DEFCON 1 <laughs> DEFCON. Over here. Uh, on Arrakis. Bad. DEFCON, the serious <laughs> number. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the most serious DEFCON. Not the joking one, not the like lighthearted one, the serious DEFCON. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. He wraps up his plan with this thesis, right? Quote, he who can destroy a thing has the real control of it, Paul said. We can destroy the spice. End quote. Wow. I love that quote. One of my favorites. It's one of the most iconic, no doubt. And again, we've said that about yeah. like 19 quotes so far, but <laughs> Dune's got some iconic. It's all quotes. iconic. Oh, every sentence is iconic. <laughs> it's a good book. Uh, the guild needs spice. They need spice to perform their duties. So again, as far as nuclear options goes, this is good. This works. Tony is a bit shook by this. She's she's a little surprised. Love of her life is like, yeah, well, we'll just kill God. It's great. We'll just kill off your God. It's wonderful. And she instead rallies because she believes in the person she loves. And he's also the Lisa El Gabe, and he's basically the chosen one. She rallies. Quote, you said you see the now, end quote. And kind of rather than addressing that, he basically says, get it done. He's like, you know what? Right. I said it. Set it up. Set up the dead man's switch. We're going to have this insurance. And as we go into this final battle, we're going to have this safety net, which is to say the nuclear option. All righty. The next chapter, chapter 46, and the last one for today's section. Yes. We join Paul and Stilgar some time later, and they are camped just outside of Arakeen, spying on the emperor's encampment. My guy, the emperor, is so confident of his victory that in addition to his legions of Sardaukar, he brought the whole squad. Right. He, he brought the royal servants and the scribe and the dude who shines his shoes. Everyone <laughs> is here. Yeah. Because they're all just so confident that the emperor cannot lose. Not with this many Sardaukar backing him. Right. Now, Paul is out here looking through some binoculars, surveying the battlefield for the battle that is to come. And 
Gertie and Stilgar, concerned father figures here, are super worried. <laughs> right. They're seeing the confidence within Paul, but they're also like, dude, you're a little exposed out here. Like, if someone wanted to snipe you and just end this, they could. Oh, gosh. You you look cold. Have you eaten? Right. Have you been eating? Have you been eating enough? You look tense. You look really tense. Get him some <laughs> yeah, tiger tense. bomb. Get him some tiger bomb for the shoulders. Right. And Paul's like, guys, we're about to fucking fight a battle. Of course I'm tense. <laughs> guys, I'm the main character. Shut up. You're embarrassing me in front of the reader. <laughs> So a lot of this chapter is just sort of Gurney and Stilgar doting over Paul and worrying about the battle that is to come. And everyone is in place. We're basically sort of on the edge of a precipice here, and we're about to leap into battle. A very tense chapter. And actually, one of my all-time favorite exchanges takes place here. Quote, Why is he so gloomy? Stilgar asked. He's always gloomy before a battle, Paul said. It's the only form of good humor Gurney allows himself. <laughs> a slow, wolfish grin spread across Gurney's face, the teeth showing white above the chip cut of his still suit. It glooms me much to think on all the poor Harkonnen souls will dispatch unshriven, he said. <laughs> Stilgar chuckled. He talks like a Fidekin. End quote. I love it. I love the camaraderie, the brotherhood. <laughs> yeah. These two have clearly become friends in the past couple of weeks or however long it's been since their first meeting. Last time we saw them, Paul said, you two I would have as friends, like I'd have you two be friends. Yeah. They're clearly buddies. They're clearly like, yeah. yo, you're fucking nuts, bro. And they're like, yeah, <laughs> they've got that camaraderie. Hell yeah. Yeah, this banter's real cute here. And, you know, understandable, right? Everyone here is tense right now. A little bit of banter to diffuse all the tension in the air. Never heard anyone. Right. Now, the aforementioned great-great-grandmother of Storm is actually a great-great-great-grandmother of a Storm. <laughs> so many greats. And it is approaching. So many greats. A little too many greats. It's, who the keeps Storm track that is far? approaching. <laughs> right. <laughs> Eventually, you stop with the generations. Paul's guys. like, that's absurd. Just say it's big. <laughs> Just say it's huge. <laughs> right. Just say it's a huge storm, guys. Guys, I right. think it might be even ancestry.com is like, okay, we stop at four greats. 23 and <laughs> me is hopping in to measure the size of this storm. <laughs> wow, that storm is 45% English. Huh. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Yeah, so 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 this uh, Portuguese English storm approaches, <laughs> and they set off the atomics, not against the emperor, but against the shield wall, which blows a hole in the shield wall, allowing this storm to bear down on the emperor's campsite at Arakeen. So this is a one-two punch. The shields have now been disabled by the great 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 grandmother of a storm, and. Right. Uh -huh. The ships are now crippled, leaving the Emperor and the Harkonnens and all the soldiers down there with no escape. They are trapped. Right. While all of this is happening, we know that the Arakeen locals who have been oppressed for these past few years under Harkonnen rule, under Beast Raban, have been riled up these past few weeks. And they are ready to rise up. They know this fight is coming. They know the Fremen are about to attack. They will simultaneously. As the attack begins, rise up and help with the fighting. So the Harkonnens and the legions of Sardaukar will have a fight on two fronts, Fremen attacking from the desert 
and their own people in the city rising up and attacking them from behind. It's a well-executed plan. Right. And it's also a plan that is now fully underway. Right. Once you <laughs> set off the atomics, there's no going back. True. That's what they say about atomics. Yeah. So we are now fully committed time to execute this plan. But wait a second. An urgent message suddenly comes in over the communication channels for Paul. The storm has made the transmission garbled and difficult to understand, but the gist is clear enough. A Fremen stronghold has been raided by the Sardaukar, Paul's son has been killed, and Alia has been taken hostage. Wow. What news to get on the eve of battle. It's awful. Yeah. And this chapter ends on, honestly, one of maybe the darkest notes in the entire book. This passage gave me chills. Quote, he felt emptied, a shell without emotions. Everything he touched brought death and grief, and it was like a disease that could spread across the universe. He could feel the old man wisdom, the accumulation out of the experiences from countless possible lives. Something seemed to chuckle and rub its hands within him. And Paul thought, how little the universe knows about the nature of real cruelty. End quote and end oh. chapter. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Such dark stuff. You can see how this news has really pushed Paul into a dark place, into a dangerous place, considering how much power he wields now. Yeah. Man, what a... <laughs> Uh, this is why wow. we did only 50 pages, because here we yeah. are, <laughs> this insane roller from Gurney, like, you know, Paul's TED Talk to Gurney to the coma and then coming back as the chosen one and then this explosion and then the death of his son. <sighs> this is dense. This is insane. So much. Yeah, this is this is a tough set of chapters to get through. So much emotion packed into just 50 pages. Well. That's the summary of the section we're covering today. Let's go from there into our key takeaways. But before we do that, we are going to take a quick break. <laughs> so we'll be back right after this. It's not going to be a three-week coma, we promise. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alrighty, welcome back. It's been just a few moments for us. Hopefully it hasn't been three weeks for you. <laughs> it could have been if they paused. <laughs> They're method actors, been. our Hopefully listeners. Hopefully you didn't. Hopefully you really wanted to keep listening because we're going to get into the takeaways. We have two takeaways today that we want to get into. Takeaway number one, Paul embraces being the Kwisatz Haderach. I mean, we have to just talk about this three-week coma that he was in. We touched on it in the summary but we wanted to go a little deeper because it tells us so much about Paul's growth and Paul's character arc in this story. This is the point where he finally embraces the legend. He has spent most of the book either confused or shocked by his powers, understandably, and also outright rejecting labels that people have put on him. Things like Lisa on All Gabe or Kwisatz Haderach. 
he hasn't embraced those ideas or those labels. He's, in fact, pushed back against them until now. Right. It is in these chapters where he decides, okay, I'm going to go through this spice agony. Let's see if I really am the Kwisatz Haderach. That's really the first time where Paul himself calls himself the Kwisatz Haderach, or at least acknowledges that he might be it. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of see this as, okay, I've accumulated all these titles. <laughs> Let's see if I get this one more. <laughs> right. And then kind of begrudgingly going to try this out. And what's fascinating is we're given another clue into Paul's powers. Again, we as the reader don't fully understand them either. And in these pages, we learned that Paul's abilities are wavering. He did not see that confrontation with Gurney as we talked about. Quote, his body had slowly acquired a certain spice tolerance that made prescient visions fewer and fewer, dimmer and dimmer. End quote. Wow. That raises so many questions. Yes. What? <laughs> I mean, years ago, only a few years ago, eating a spice morsel, just a little leaf-wrapped spice morsel, made him trip balls. And he would see <laughs> millions of futures. Are these his powers weakening? Is he becoming too dependent on it? You know, he's, he's having to chase that high. He's yeah, yeah. chasing that mythical high. It definitely raises some questions. Again, I would say that his powers have always been kind of unclear to us as the reader. We get these moments of him saying outright to us, hey, this moment is a decision nexus. I might die. I might not. Let's find out together. And those moments are pretty clear to us. But the true extent of his powers are always kind of questioned. And this is just adding to that doubt. Yeah. No matter how powerful he gets, that prescience is not a skeleton key that opens any door he wants. There are blind spots and there are ways that he can absolutely still fail, even though he's this older, more mature, more sure-footed version of Paul that we've, you know, than we've ever seen before. Absolutely. Yeah, regardless of what the Fremen may think, he is not omniscient. He does not see it all. He does not know it all. And it's that very fact that pushes him to undergo the spice agony. It's this tense standoff with Gurney that makes him realize, oh, no, it's time for me to level up because... Hyperbolic time chamber. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> He's got to go Super Saiyan because it's just not... Kaioken's not working anymore. We're, we're going really deep on this Dragon Ball Z reference, I hope. He did times 100. It was painful. Didn't work. Yeah. Didn't quite work. Oh, man. Sorry to the <laughs> listeners who didn't grow up in the 90s obsessively watching Dragon Ball Z. Oh, God. Y'all missed out. Y'all missed out. Now, a single <laughs> drop of this water of life sends Paul into the craziest time trip of his life. And again, what passes as just moments for him is actually a three-week death-like coma for everyone else. But ultimately, as we talked about, he is successful in converting the poison and thus... And this is insane. He becomes the first male in human history to survive this bisagony. Yeah, that's it. Confirms it. <laughs> he is the Quisatz Haderach. This is absolute concrete confirmation. This is who he is. Right. Wild stuff. I mean, Benny, Jesuit, Reverend Mothers have been undergoing this bisagony for generations. 
And the, their ultimate goal has been to find, I guess, the Reverend Father. <laughs> like the, the, the re- Reverend Daddy. <laughs> the Reverend Daddy. <laughs> I'll never recover from that joke. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, I'm crying. I'm legitimately like wiping tears. So this is the part of the chapter that, for me at least, gets a little weird and problematic. And what's interesting is um, you and I have a rare bit of disagreement on this point, but we glossed over it in the summary and we wanted to save it here for the takeaway now. But once Paul awakens from his coma, he starts explaining what he saw or his new level of understanding now that his mind has been awoken. And he talks about that place where the reverend mothers cannot face, right? That dark void. Right. That dark where cellular the, coy, core. The, yeah. Exactly. That core where reverend mothers forever have been unable to face and enter and peer into. He is the first human to be able to peer into it. Right. And Paul talks about these ancient forces within all of us, one that gives and one that takes. Quote, a man finds little difficulty facing that place within himself where the taking force dwells. But it's almost impossible for him to see into the giving force without changing into something other than a man. For a woman, the situation is reversed. End quote. Now, my personal take on this, I won't speak for you here, Leo, of course. For me, this is the passage that is a little problematic. Um, to me, this kind of comes off as an idea seeped in these very old-fashioned and sexist ideas of women being givers, caregivers, mother figures, while a man's role is to be a taker. That's not to say that this is proof definitive that Frank himself was some sort of raging sexist and hated women or that Dune as a story, as a work of art, is overtly sexist. That's not the point I'm trying to make, and I think it would be silly to read into it in that way, but I just want to acknowledge that, yes, Dune is a book that was written by a white man in the 70s, and some of the ideas that are presented in it, or some of the ways that characters think or behave, won't exactly hold up to 2021 levels of wokeness. And this is one part that, for me at least, personally, rubs me the wrong way and kind of comes off very old-fashioned and gendered in a way that kind of it it just it just doesn't land with me and the final thing i say before you jump in because i'm really interested to hear your take on this as well but this idea also something that annoys me about this particular idea about the giving and the taking and the man men and the women is uh i don't think this is even a spoiler to say this like literally never comes up ever again in future dune books this this exact way of thinking about prescience or powers or Benny Gesserit or any of this, like this giving and taking idea for some weird reason only ever exists in this chapter and literally over the next five books never comes up in this way again. So the fact that it's never even fleshed out and explored further is also, to me, a detriment to this idea. So that that's at least my, my take on it. But I'm curious what, what you think, because we don't. Um, agree a hundred percent on this. Yeah, no, I I think w- hearing the way you said it here, 
I think we are much closer to agreement than than not. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying it is totally, totally possible <laughs> that this is straight up, yeah, uh, a kind of a problematic paragraph written with problematic ideas in mind and is just not great, is not the take, doesn't hold up to 2021 standards of, of you know, talking about gender and, and thinking about gender. On the other hand, and I'll, and I'll say this kind of as a devil's advocate, but also I think just to have another perspective on this, a few things. First of all, kind of exactly to your point, it doesn't really ever come up again, ever. And some of these themes do. Some of these conversations about prescience and you know, some of the themes of Dune continue through, the, through all of the books. His explanation of what he found in that dark cellular core, keep in mind, the dark cellular core is described in almost poetry. It's like sparks and rings of light and wind out of nowhere, all very elemental and core. And so I almost think that when he's saying here, man and woman, he's not exactly talking the same conversation that we would have in 2021 about like gender identity and, and uh, even roles of man and woman. It almost feels more like, yes, in the 70s, this sort of dichotomy maybe existed of yin and yang, give and take. And maybe it's all metaphor, right? Like maybe this is more metaphorical and less literal than it appears. Now, we are all having, hopefully, hopefully out there, we are all having conversations right now about how we handle gender. And they're very important conversations, but it also leads us to when we see someone say, this is what it means for a man and this is what it means for a woman, that also rubs me the wrong way. And this paragraph absolutely rubs me the wrong way. But if you look at all of the rest of Dune, this book, but also the other books, it seems unlikely to me that Frank would say, here it is. Here's my chance to outline the cellular core of how people exist by this omniscient super being, the Kwisatz Haderach. Women are, have to be givers and men have to be takers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that simply isn't the way that Frank built the rest of the world, right? Right. So part of me thinks, even if this paragraph rubs me the wrong way, it may simply be that it is meant to be more metaphorical and it's more meant to be this elemental quality. And maybe just Paul as a young man is like, yeah, guys and ladies. No, I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough. hard it's for tough. me. To, it's hard for me to reconcile that idea because very clearly, although Dune does have these kind of feudalistic power structures and it is broadly patriarchal, right? Every leader is a guy. It's not like the author or the characters are thinking in those same terms. So I don't know. Um, I think at the end of the day, I see this as, I, I think it's just more likely that this is more metaphorical, but I don't know. There's no, I don't think there's a solid, I really wish we could have Frank Herbert on the podcast to like yeah. ask him in 2021 terms, what did you mean by this? And, and kind of let's talk through it. And I, yeah, I think that it, it would be hasty to say this paragraph is indicative of some broad misogyny in the Dune books. And generally, I kind of, although the paragraph wording rubbed me the wrong way, I'm like, yeah, I think this is probably just metaphor using some weird vocabulary. Yeah, totally. And I, I can definitely see it from that perspective, too. And I think we're both in agreement that using a single paragraph in a 800 page book as an example of why 
the whole story <laughs> is uh, sexist or um, full of misogyny it is not the way to go about it. I mean, we're, we right. wanted to try and have a respectful and nuanced conversation about it, but also call out things that stand out to us as issues. Yeah. You know, you can love a thing. You can love a yeah, work of art totally. and still critique its shortcomings. And that doesn't detract from the ways you feel about it or how the rest of the art resonates with you. This part didn't resonate with me. Right, right. And to be clear, a hun- I, yes, it is so important to allow ourselves to be critical of things we love. And it is important to have these conversations because these sorts of conversations will shape how we move forward as a society. So I'm in complete agreement. And actually, I will turn this to you, the reader, if you had a different take on this, or if you agree, or just let us know. We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Again, this is one of those moments where I'm still kind of teeter-tottering on how I feel about it. And even just looking up some discourse online or talking to you, Abu, here, it, it's it's all helpful. And I think it all helps us be more aware of how this work of fiction can affect other people. Definitely. Okay, let's jump into our second and final takeaway for this episode. Takeaway number two, the Spacing Guild's secret. We have barely talked about the Spacing Guild during this book club, and it's about time we do. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to run out of opportunities. Yeah, truly. And they suddenly become really, really important here near the end of the book. We have heard references to them all throughout the book, of course, but now they start to play a pivotal role. So we figured now would be a good time to touch a little bit on the Spacing Guild and cover who they are, where they come from, and their role in this story and in the Empire. Of course, with the caveat that there is literally an entire episode's worth of discussion to be had about the Spacing Guild that we will not be having here. We'll save... (laughs) Yeah. We'll save that for an entire episode dedicated more thoroughly to the Spacing Guild. But in today's takeaway, we want to give a brief overview and add to your understanding and context of their role in this story so far. So let's jump into it. A brief history of the Guild from the Dune Encyclopedia. Shortly after the Butlerian Jihad. Which that's like 11,000, like 10,000 years before Dune. Yes. So for context in the timeline, we're roughly 10-ish thousand years ago before any of this story takes place that we're reading. After the Butlerian Jihad, two people named Aurelius Venport and Norma Sevna went to the planet Tupil, planet we've discussed before on this podcast, and they established the Society of Mystic Mariners. <laughs> and this that. basically, okay. I love that name. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's a good alt <laughs> indie band. Yeah. yeah. Society of Mystic Mariners. Now, Venport and Sevna, by creating this group of Mystic Mariners, are basically laying the groundwork of a group that will evolve into the modern Spacing Guild. After Sevna dies and Venport mysteriously disappears, a Tupilian man named Freelo Mason then takes over the Society of Mystic Mariners and he's really the one that is responsible for transforming the Mariners into what we know now today as the modern spacing guild it's his ambition his ideas and his leadership that push the mariners forward beyond just operating on Tupil. and his ultimate goal 
with the Mariners is to turn the group into, quote, an interstellar shipping monopoly moving swiftly and safely through hyperspace, end quote. I heard some, like, corporate music behind that. That was... <laughs> right. That's, like, spoken by a soft, an interstellar shipping monopoly moving swiftly and safely through hyperspace. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> like... <laughs> right. That, that's the pitch he takes to all of the investor meetings trying to get, you know, that's, right. he's going to Y Combinator like, yo, can you can you invest in my app? <laughs> this week on Shark Tank. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. But he is successful because by the time of his death, the guild is well on its way toward that goal of becoming a interstellar shipping monopoly. And the key thing that truly helps them towards this goal is their discovery of Arrakis and the Spice Melange, which then becomes central to their ability to travel through space. So as a reminder, after the Butlerian Jihad, right, this war against thinking machines, we've got no computers, no thinking machines, or no machines that work like the thinking human mind. How do you go faster than light <laughs> without a computer? <laughs> yeah. It's dangerous. Yeah. Keep running into shit. Now, the Spacing Guild has a solution. They're like, we're going to have some navigators who are semi-prescient. They've got enough prescience to kind of poke forward through the veil of time and say, yo, fate, do we get there? Yes or no? Is this cool? You know, chart a course. And they can guide that ship then to arrive safely. It seems like pretty much every time, which is mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. Now, at the same time as all of this happening, we have the fledgling Carino Empire. Larger ambitions. They're like, we want to have a big empire. We don't <laughs> right. want to be a tiny, crappy empire. Bigger. We want to be bigger, more, more. <laughs> <laughs> so the Spacing Guild partnered up with the fledgling empire and by establishing its value, basically offered and kind of guaranteed a future where interstellar commerce was possible. Now, over the next thousands of years, the guild established this sort of near total monopoly. Again, they've got that secret ticket. They've got that, those, those spicy boys who can see yeah. whether or not the trip's going to be successful. And they end up wielding this immense influence on pretty much everyone, including the most powerful people in the galaxy. They are the lifeblood of the Empire in a lot of ways. Right. And that's also why, even though we have all of these ships, all of these great houses floating in the space around Arrakis, no one is going to risk landing. Because as Paul points out, if one of them lands against the guild's order, the guild will be like, cool, you live on Arrakis now. Right. <laughs> Welcome have, to have your new... Have fun trying to travel interstellarly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, are you going to walk home? You idiot. <laughs> exactly. And you mentioned the secret to their success has been these navigators and these steersmen using the spice. These are bioengineered and highly trained individuals within the Spacing Guild who enter, as you explained, this spice trance and briefly peer into the future to make sure that the massive ships that they're piloting full of people and resources and whatever else needs to be shipped will make it to its destination safely. Follow the path of the future that is the safest. But this is wild 
No one else knows about this. The guild has somehow, for the last nearly 10,000 years, managed to keep this reliance on spice a total secret. By basically wrapping their institution in secrecy and mysticism and diverting any sorts of questions. Basically, it's a trade secret for the Spacing Guild that has not leaked until now because Paul right. has finally connected two and two and realizes just how utterly dependent the Guild is on both the planet Arrakis and the spice that it produces and exports. The Guild simply cannot operate without those navigators and steersmen being able to go into those spice trances. And that's, again, back to Paul's quote, if you can destroy a thing, then you are the one who controls it. The ball is in Paul's court. And ultimately, I think the thing to take away from this takeaway is don't put all your eggs in one basket, folks. Diversify. Paul will come around and fucking throw it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Diversify your investments. Yeah. Income streams. <laughs> Diversify. <laughs> so that is our takeaways for our penultimate. Yes. Book for real this time. Episode. For real this time. We we literally promise. Up next, we're going to talk about spice morsels. We've got them fresh out of the spice oven, I guess, and we're going to serve them up to you. But we're going to take a quick ad break first because they're too hot. They're too hot. We need to give them a minute. So hang out. We'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back. Yes. Let's round out today's episode, as we always do, with some deep cut lore spice morsels. Mm. We have some fun ones today, so let's jump right in. Delicious. The first one, hot out of the oven, Baroda of Chusuk. So Words, words, words. <laughs> words. One of those <laughs> words you might have recognized, which is of. Of. <laughs> of. <laughs> we talked about Balisets in the fourth episode of our book club, way back then. But immediately following the tense reunion of Gurney and Jessica, you know, all a knife to the throat, what a happy reunion, we get some kind of fancy name drops and deep references, and let's talk about them. That's what this section's for. <laughs> so Gurney, still shaken from Paul's incredible speech, he starts to almost like absentmindedly geek out over his balisette. They go, oh, do you have a balisette? He's like, yeah, I got a new one. and Quote, brought from Chusik, a sweet instrument, plays like a genuine Veroda, though there's no signature on it. I think myself it was made by a student of Verota, who, and he trails off, end quote. He stops himself at that point, but listen, folks, that's enough for me. <laughs> Let's look at Chusik <laughs> and Verota. Any excuse? Yeah. We mentioned in that fourth book club episode that balisets are, quote, tuned to the Chusik scale and played by strumming. End quote. But we didn't mention that Chusik is a planet. <laughs> it's a whole place. Yeah. It's a place people are from. From the terminology of the Imperium. Quote, Chusik, fourth planet of Theta Shalish, the so-called music planet noted for the quality of its musical instruments. See Verota. End quote. Oh, we'll see it. Oh, we'll see it because that's what we're looking <laughs> at next. Quote, Verota, famed maker of balisets, a native of Chusik, end quote. Wow, okay. Also, to round off this little morsel, his hometown, at the time of the encyclopedia's in-universe publication, the hometown of Veroda 
is actually establishing an annual Balasset Festival in honor of his life and legacy, which sounds wow. so fun. That sounds yeah. great. I want to go to a Balasset Festival. Hell yeah. That is so cool. Two tickets to Chusik. Abu, you're coming with me. <laughs> as long as we make a pit stop on Gamont. Hey, every time. Every time. <laughs> I love it. Some insight into the music lore of this universe. Yeah. One more mini morsel. This one is just, I guess, a morsel crumbs <laughs> about Gurney mm. and Balisets. Still delicious. We did an entire episode about Gurney Halleck. Definitely go back and check that out. It's a spoiler-free look at his life leading up to the first pages of Dune. And in that episode, we talked about how in the Dune Encyclopedia, it establishes that Gurney Halleck's homeworld is Chusik. Oh, Chusik native. A Chusik native, Gurney Halleck. And side note, we understand that this is different from Brian Herbert. He changed Gurney Halleck's homeworld in yeah. his books. Yada, yada, yada. According to the encyclopedia, Gurney was born on Chusik. Right. And his family were actually Balasset manufacturers. Yeah. Now, not as famous as Veroda, clearly. No one's throwing a Halleck festival. <laughs> right. But right. his family also manufactured Balasets, among other musical instruments. They were craftsmen. So it makes sense that here in this chapter, he kind of geeks out about this Balasset and <laughs> yeah. understands some of the intricacies of Balasset manufacturing. Of course, he would know of the legendary Veroda and Revere one of the best Balasset makers in the galaxy. Cool stuff. Extended lore, folks. Heck yeah. Deep cuts. The kind of morsels <laughs> I love to chow down on. <laughs> Next up, legions upon legions. Plans within plans, legions upon legions. We get this measurement in Dune all the time. <laughs> like yeah, So much. Paul's like, oh, I'm picturing legions of... Frank has never heard of a battalion. He's never once used a normal <laughs> number. Just always some word for it. And especially in these final pages of Dune, it always kind of goes over my head, you know, when he says, oh, five legions of Sardaukar, and everyone goes, oh my God. I'm like, is is that a lot? Is that like 20 guys? <laughs> or is that, yeah, yeah. you know, 200? I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. So let's talk about this. Let's identify this scale because we actually can. How many men is a legion? I started down a rabbit hole of Googling and historical research before I realized, I think it's just in the terminology of the Imperium. And sure enough, it is, <laughs> quote, Legion, Imperial, 10 brigades or about 30,000 men, end quote. Oh, my God. 30,000 men. So that fateful night, right? House Atreides is attacked and scattered to the wind, basically destroyed in just a matter of days. 250,000 Harkonnen troops attacked Arakeen. That's like the city, the one city. 250,000 troops attacked. Oh my God. 60,000 of which were SEAL Team 6. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's Insane. crazy. Now, to put all of this in perspective, when Paul has awoken from his coma, he's finding five legions of Sardaukar, which is 150,000 men in the space above Arrakis. That is insane. I Jesus. mean, I've read Dune. I know what happens, <laughs> but that's still crazy. 
That's an insane number of people. And again, to be very clear, they are all one-on-one, some of the strongest fighters in the universe. Bonkers. Absolutely wild. It is sometimes hard to comprehend the scale of this universe and of this book. Yeah. That number puts a lot of things in perspective. Totally. Okay, let's wrap up the Spice Morsels and this episode. One more to go. Indeed. Final morsel is the shield wall. Shouts to our guy, the shield wall, who just got blown to hell in service of Paul's strategy here in in this upcoming battle. You were a real Rest in peace, shield wall. Truthfully speaking, there isn't a lot to say about the wall. It is a physical feature of Arrakis and not much more than that. But it has been mentioned a number of times throughout this book and is a key feature of the Arrakis landscape. So we just wanted to recognize it here on the day of its death. The wall's main accolades include protecting the cities Arakeen and Carthag from both the worms and the Coriolis storms of the desert. And it's also, sadly, the place where countless Atreides soldiers were trapped and slaughtered during the combined Harkonnen and Sardaukar attack early on in the book. My sort of personal headcanon with this is uh, I like to think that Paul nuking the fuck out of the shield wall is just one more act of vengeance on his part <laughs> against the Harkonnens. Yeah, it's like it's like a barrier reef, right? It's like it's just a rock formation in this area of Arrakis. That's so interesting. All righty, Leo. Woof! My God. We made it. We made it. Once again. The penultimate episode. What's the second penultimate episode? Isn't that fun? (laughs) Yes, but like we said earlier, for real this time. For real this time, yeah. (laughs) So the final assignment for our listeners. Many of you have hopefully already done this in preparation for today. Right. Complete the book if you haven't. Read those final 50 pages of the book. On the next book club episode, we will be wrapping up our epic journey through the pages of this first novel and talking in depth about the final 50 pages of the story and what a finale it is, what a wrap up to this epic journey. Can't wait to get into it. You know, we've gathered some kernels of sand from the great, 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 great grandmother of a storm, (laughs) sent it out to 23andMe, and they're going to tell us exactly where this storm came from. (laughs) right they're gonna tell us once and for all who really is our reverend daddy (laughs) we all just want a reverend daddy in our lives (laughs) a reverend sugar daddy (laughs) a reverend spice daddy a reverend spice daddy (laughs) that joke just gets better and better (laughs) That's got to be, we got to put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path.
seven times better seven than Jesus times. Christ of Nazareth. <laughs> <laughs> that's 700%. Is that 700%? <laughs> no, I think that's more. Two, <laughs> what? Wait. <laughs> Damn. Wait, is it? Never mind. Uh, it's fine. I don't, uh, we don't know math. I don't know math. I went to green art. <laughs> An art degree and a journalism degree. Try to do math. <laughs> How's that working out for you? How's that working out for you? 